If you would uh, go ahead and be seated, I guess. Yeah, that's great. And uh, I will pray. God, we we do want to come to you tonight and um, God, I just pray that we wouldn't come to you tritely as if you're some idea that we somehow manufactured or something. God, you are so big and grand and wonderful and holy and just other and God, we, um, I pray that we would just humble ourselves before you and desire to hear from you tonight, God, that we, we might uh, just internally rejoice at how great you are and how loved we are by you. And so, Lord, I do just want to ask tonight uh, that you would speak, that you would shape us, Lord, that we would truly hear from you. And, Lord, that all of us, just might leave this place in a more profound state of rest than when we came in. We love you, Jesus. Uh, we honor you tonight. We ask these things in your name. Amen. How are you guys doing tonight? How are you doing? Yeah? Um, let's just be honest. It's kind of weird when I say that, right? I mean, or anybody for that matter gets in front of a group of people and says, how are you doing? It's kind of strange because I'm asking a, a group of people, a large group of people, the same question, and you're all really different people. And the weirdest thing is if I were you and I just heard me say, how are you doing? I would have not answered, first of all. And if I was one of those speakers that stood here and kept saying, come on, you can do better than that or whatever, you've been there, I would eventually have just said, I'm good, right? That's kind of the general response. I never say, how are you guys doing? You're like, I'm terrible. Right? We all just say, I'm, I'm good. But what's kind of weird about that is tonight, I mean, I've already talked to some of you already. Uh, tonight, if I went up to you personally, I said, hey, how are you doing tonight? I would bet that most of you would say, oh, man, I'm busy. Or you'd say, I'm, I'm really tired. And maybe you would end with a caveat that says, but I'm good. But I'm good. You know what I'm talking about? I'm not trying to shame you. I mean, I, I say the same thing. You know, I'm just as, as guilty uh, of it as you are. Hear me clearly, but let's just be honest. We are busy people. We're really busy people. We are really tired people. And, and I assume that I don't really need to stand here tonight and kind of put out for you all these examples and statistics and stuff to kind of prove that to you. I think just unanimously you go, yeah, we are. We are tired people. We are weary people. Yeah, well, why are we this way? Why are we so tired? Why are we so busy all the time? Well, I think in large part, it has to do with the fact that we are, in history, the most individualistic culture ever. We really, we really are. Previously, then, in other generations, what would happen is if uh, you went up to somebody and you asked them about who they were, they would get their identity. They would say to you who they are based upon their community or based upon their family. So if you were to say to somebody in previous generations, who are you? They would say, oh, I'm so-and-so's son. Or they would say, I'm so-and-so's daughter or something like that. Identity was attached to community or family or something like that. But now our identity, all of us in this room, if you're, if you're a part of Western society, our identity is wrapped up in our achievement. Our identity now is wrapped up in our work. 
We now gain our identity primarily through achievement. So what you do has now become the giver of your identity. This is why one of the first questions that you ever ask somebody when you're wanting to get to know them is, what do you do? What do you do? It's one of the first things we ask each other. This is why I think we are a weary society. This is why we at times try to actually cease from doing our work and you know what you hear immediately when you try to take some rest. You hear that voice in the back of your mind that says you're getting behind. You're getting behind. You gotta keep going. Don't stop. I don't know about you, but when I go on vacation, I put that email responder on. Some of you don't even use email, but I still use email, right? I put that vacation responder on. It's a little um, stressful, because if I ever think about my email when I'm on vacation, I know that inbox is just piling up and it's gonna give me a lot more work to do when I get home. I saw an interview the other day with um, a woman who, I think she's like one of the head CEOs of Google. She's releasing this new book or something and she was talking about it and she confessed that she didn't check her email uh, during a certain day recently and that was the first day that she hadn't checked her email in almost 10 years. A little voice that says, you better not stop. You gotta keep going, right? We live in a society where Sabbath skipping is applauded. We're not taking breaks is applauded. And Sabbath taking, all it does is bring us guilt. It can sometimes feel like shame. And so it's incredibly refreshing to us tonight, I hope, to hear the voice of God through his word call us to rest, to rest, to disconnect from the noise and to actually Sabbath. But, but we're not simply talking about taking a day off tonight. That's not what our passage is telling us to simply do. Our passage tonight reveals the restlessness beneath the restlessness of our lives, if you will. It's kind of getting at that thing that's even beneath that feeling and that desire to, to stay restless. And so we're going to take a look at a very important passage about rest, and we find it in Hebrews chapter 4, and Stephen did a great job of reading that for us already. And so if you have a Bible, please open it up there. It'll be on page 649 if you're using one of the Bibles underneath your seat. And so what we see here in Hebrews chapter 4, we must understand this. Hebrews, this isn't a letter. This is not just a letter written to a church or something. This is, this is known, this is thought to be a pastor who's writing a sermon to a group of people. But these aren't just any people. These are people who have abandoned the religion, the accepted religion of their culture and society. And now these people are being persecuted just horrifically because of it. And so he's writing as a pastor this sermon to these people. It's one massive sermon, and a lot of Hebrews can be really difficult to understand if you don't understand the Old Testament at all, but it's so rich. And what we see here in chapter 4 as we get to chapter 4 is this person, this pastor, getting to the heart of this concept, this biblical concept of rest for these people. And I don't know, if I were being persecuted and all of a sudden my pastor started talking to me about this concept of finding rest in my daily life, that would feel almost like this ice-cold cup of filtered water, you know? at the end of a day where I just spent time in like a desert of 115 degrees, right, without any. Right? It would just be so refreshing, I would think. 
And right away, I mean, you probably felt it as Stephen was reading it. The, the word rest is mentioned here eight times in 11 verses. These people needed rest. They needed it. And what's so amazing is they are invited and called into this rest of God, God's rest in the midst of persecution. And we, although we live in a very different culture and we're experiencing a really different culture than these people, we desperately need that same invitation as well. And so what we're going to see tonight, and this is uh, really the first of two weeks that we're going to spend on this topic of rest and what God's vision and God's call to rest is. And I hope tonight that we'll see that God's call to rest is much deeper than simply refraining from work. It's much deeper than simply taking a day off now and again. God wants to get down into your heart tonight, I believe, and to heal your deep restlessness. So tonight, I want us to see from this passage in Hebrews, I put this on the screen for you guys if you want to follow along, uh, we're going to see three different definitions of rest. Uh, we're going to see how God exposes our restlessness, and we see this, honestly, this beautiful call to enter God's rest. So first, three definitions of rest. Well, let's just consider this for a second. What do you think rest is? I mean, I've, I've said the word probably like a thousand times already, right? What do you think, what do you think of when I'm saying that? When I'm like, rest, you're like, yes, I just need a night to binge watch something on Netflix, you know, or, oh, I just need to get away to Central Oregon and be able to like watch the sunrise with my favorite cup of coffee or something, you know, over this beautiful landscape, you know, I, I, I just need some rest. I just need the absence of activity in my life. Like, what do you, what do you even, how are you even interpreting what I'm saying? Like, what is, what is rest to you? And is that even what Hebrews is telling us? Well, this word rest, it's, again, it's used so many times in this chapter, and it's used in a lot of different ways, which is really maybe tricky to see at first, but I, I, it's important that we see this. The first way that this is used is in reference to the promised land, okay? So the first way this is used in reference to the promised land, we see in verse 1, I'll read the first eight verses. It says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. They didn't believe, that's what he's saying. For we who have believed enter that rest. And he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. All right, so we see here right away, these verses are, if you're not aware, if you haven't read the first few verses or chapters of Hebrews, it's talking about a time in Israel's history where they were slaves in Egypt. And he says, you know, I, I delivered, God delivered his people out of slavery, and he was going to lead them into a promised land. And these people saw tremendous things, right? They saw all these plagues that God brought upon Egypt. They saw the Red Sea parted in front of their eyes. They were led by a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day. Right? They got to see all these amazing things. They got to be fed by manna that just like appear on the ground. They, they drank water that was, just came from a rock. But they saw all these incredible things, and all of a sudden, it, they, it came time to enter into this land of Canaan, this promised land, and they sent forward 12 spies to look out that land, which represented the 12 tribes of Israel, 
okay, follow me. And they go and they spy it out and they're like, no, these people are too big. They're just gonna, they're too scary. God can't do it, right? They don't believe that God could actually come through and that God could provide this land, this promised land, this place of rest. And, and what's fascinating is this is saying to you, and this is quoting a psalm two different times, it's saying that their punishment for not obeying, for not believing in this promise that God was giving to them is that they wouldn't enter God's rest. That a lack of rest was the punishment. What's like the worst punishment you could think of? Well, here it seems to be no rest or a lack of it. See, rest is fundamental to our human condition. It's fundamental to have life and to, and to be fulfilled and to have joy. But this rest that's being referred to here at the beginning is related to the promised land. Well, why would that be a place of rest? That doesn't even really make sense. Like, why is that a place of rest? Well, think about it. You were in, if you were in slavery for all these years and you were led into a promised land, this land is symbolizing a place of rest because it meant uh, refraining from the absence of physical labor and just emotional toil. This was going to be a place, this is referring to a place that would provide physical rest and social rest, where they would no longer be oppressed. We're talking about like social justice type of stuff here. So this place of rest is referring to this physical rest and social rest. So Israel was a nation of slaves being worked into the ground. And if you look in places like Deuteronomy chapter 15, you understand what this place really is. What this means is this. If, if, you, if you think of rest in the concept of what it's being communicated here, that means that when you rest, that is a declaration of freedom. When you rest, you are declaring freedom. Therefore, anyone who overworks in life is a slave. When you rest and when you put down your work, you say, you know what, I'm not a cog in a machine. I'm not a slave to the identity system of my society. I'm not a slave. When you rest, it's like a revolutionary act, if you will. God brought Israel out of slavery where they could put limits now on their work. They could rest. So we now understand that rest is a declaration of freedom. But secondly, we see a kind of rest that is tied to God's identity, God resting himself. Looking down in verse 4, okay? It says, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, which I love that. So if you're one of those people that's always like, I don't know, it's in the Bible somewhere. Apparently that's a biblical way to talk. So, okay, so for he somewhere, I don't know, somewhere in the Bible spoke on the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Right? So the fact God rests from his work should, should throw a lot of understanding into this word of rest. Okay, think about this. Because when you think of the concept of God resting, you realize right away that God can't get tired. If you read other parts of the Bible, you know God does not sleep. He doesn't get tired. He's not like, you know what, I just need a day off. That's not God. He doesn't sleep or slumber. He doesn't get weary. He doesn't get tired. How does God rest from his work? Because most of us just think of rest as like the absence of not doing anything, like we're really tired. I mean, any physical activity in general, you have to stop at some point just so you can continue on. 
I mean, I re- it's a really formative experience in my life. I remember in high school, I thought it'd be fun going to boxing. Don't know why. Thought that'd be really fun. I went for one day, okay? And I'll never forget, they were like, hit this heavy bag for 30 seconds. I was like, 30 seconds? Are you joking? That's it? And 10 seconds in, I'm not exaggerating, 10 seconds in, I was like, is it not 30 seconds yet? Like, I was so tired. And they're like, no, you're not even there yet. And I knew in that moment, I was not going to continue on in this boxing endeavor, right? (laughs) We get, when we do anything physical, we're like, I have to rest just to keep going. So that's our concept of rest. But God rests in the Bible. That's what this is referring to here right? You, you have to stop and rest just in order to keep going. So what does this mean for God to rest? Well, you have to go back to the beginning of your Bibles is where we were hanging out last week in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And what is fascinating is in the account of Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is this. Every day God works. He creates things. It's beautiful. And he always says it's good. And every creation day, it ends by saying there was evening and there was morning, the fill in the blank day. But you get to day seven. And what does it say? It says God looks out and sees everything that he has made, and he's really satisfied. It's very good. And it says, and he rests from all of his work. He just enjoys and finds satisfaction in what he made, but there is no refrain. It doesn't say there was evening and there was morning the seventh day. And people understand this to be a Hebrew way of saying that time on has launched us out into the rest of Scripture with now this really profound understanding that God is always at rest, that God is a resting God, if you will. That doesn't mean he's lazy. It doesn't mean that he's idle. I mean, Jesus even says in the Gospels, my father is always at work and so am I. Like we know that God initiates, that God pursues, that God acts, that God redeems, that he still does things. But there's this profound understanding in the rest of the Bible that God is always at rest. He's, he's always resting. So God rests, and he is the source of rest, and this means that he is satisfied with what he has done. It is good that it's finished. He was able to lay down his work on the seventh day because he was satisfied with what he had done and what, was do, what he was doing. That's what it means to rest. It's not just an absence of doing things. But thirdly, and this is really what this uh, writer of Hebrews is getting at, there, there's a deeper rest that this Hebrew writer is getting at. It's the rest that we are really meant to see tonight. And we gain a third understanding of how rest is being defined here in verses two through three. Because he says, good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. We see there is a rest that the current listeners that he's writing to have actually believed and entered into, something that Israel that he's talking about hadn't entered into before. Previous generations hadn't. And then down in verse 8, he says this. He says, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. See, Joshua He was the one who actually led God's people into the promised land, that that place where they could put limits on their work, where they could declare freedom, that kind of thing, right? And Joshua did that, but he's saying that's not ultimately what this rest is referring to, because if that was it, then you'd have to get a plane ticket right now and go to the Middle East in order to experience rest. There's something much more profound that this is actually talking about. 
See, we see that later Joshua didn't succeed in giving them this ultimate rest that God had designed for you tonight to experience, okay? There's a deeper rest being talked about, a deeper restlessness that's being mentioned here. I mean, just like in sleep, I mean, I'm no scientist or something, but we're all pretty aware that you could sleep at night and wake up and be exhausted. There's this understanding that you can sleep but not really be rested. You kind of have to have that rapid eye movement stuff that people talk about or whatever, like the deep sort of sleep, right? That's what you're supposed to try to attain, okay? So external rest, physical, emotional rest from your labor is, is not, that's not all that you need. You don't just need physical rest or emotional rest. You need a, a deep inner rest. No, no amount of vacations can provide you freedom from restlessness until you find that deep inner rest. No amount of vacations will provide it for you, that rest you're seeking. The deep restlessness that, that Joshua couldn't lead God's people into is the need that you and I have to justify ourselves. It's the need to, to prove ourselves. It's the need to make us acceptable in the eyes of other people. It's this feeling that you have deep down that says, I'm not okay. I'm not acceptable. And we're working, and we're working, and we're working just trying to prove ourselves to ourselves and to other people and to God. That, that's the work underneath all the work that all the vacations in the world cannot cure. That's the restlessness underneath the weariness that we need fixed or else we will collapse and we will, honestly, will die. Verse nine illuminates this further. What does it say? It says, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Do you notice that? That what this is talking about is not just the absence of, of doing some things. It's not just going out and enjoying yourself or taking a day off. It can't be that because that would mean then that anybody on this planet could experience this rest. It says that this rest is for the people of God, not just for any old person who goes on a camping trip or something, or if that's not relaxing to you, goes to a hotel or whatever. I don't know. Right, this is talking about something much deeper, right? It's, it's for Christians. It's for people who've followed Jesus. It can't simply be the absence of work. So rest can't simply just be the concept of sitting there, enjoying something that you enjoy, not stressing out at the moment. It's, it's for the people of God. So rest can't just be that. And secondly, we get to see here how God actually exposes this restlessness, Right? down in verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What about you? But, I mean, even this week I read this many times, and I'm like, how in the world? Why is this here? Like, in a way, it just seems strange. You're reading all this stuff about rest, and all of a sudden you get to this point about the Bible, you know, and this verse you quote all the time, probably. And it just seems really lovely to us. And if you think about it, you're like, what in the world does this have to do with rest? And really, let's just be real for a second. We've, we've said those words so many times, we forget to realize how sort of like horribly threatening those words are to us. I mean, just think of the imagery. 
that this is giving you, okay? You might be sitting here going, well, man, I thought this was about, like, peace. I thought this was all about rest or something. You're talking about, like, a sword, like, cutting me and doing all this stuff, right? This is pretty grisly. This is showing us that the Word of God will cut through and will show you the real reason that you do everything. The Word of God will cut through and show you the reason why you do your work, really. And when that happens, you will feel naked before God. You will feel that everything in your life is uncovered all of a sudden. This literally means, this, this phrase, this, this literally means in chapter thir- or verse 13 where he says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed. This phrase literally means without a garment or a stitch on. Okay. What a horrible statement. What in the world does this have to do with the, what the author is talking about? What does this have to do with rest? Well, it's talking about the fact that you will never get to the place of rest. You will never get to the place of rest without getting to the place of spiritual nakedness. You will never get to the place of rest, the rest that he's talking about here, without getting to the place of spiritual nakedness. Just go back in your minds, okay? to the beginning of your Bible again. Go back to the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, you have the first humans. You have Adam and Eve, and they were both naked, and they were unashamed. You know why? Because they were satisfied. They were at rest with who they are. Right? They, they, they saw who they were, and it was good. They had rest in the Garden. But, but the minute... That, and we should use this language, the minute that we turned from God to be our own saviors and lords, they felt a deep feeling of spiritual nakedness and this feeling that everything just, it isn't all right. It's not all right. They, they covered themselves then with fig leaves. They hid from God in the trees, if you remember the story. They experienced this feeling now that, you know what, I'm just, I'm not Okay. And now I have to do something. I need to do something to prove to myself, to others. I need to do something to prove myself to God that I am okay. I, I need to cover it up with something. To, I need to do something that will assure myself and others that I'm okay. That's what I need to do. Without God's word, you won't understand your drivenness or your restlessness. That has to be revealed to you. And the word of God does that. You see, there is a voice inside telling us that there is something wrong with us, that that we are not acceptable, that not everything's okay. We've called it complexes, or at least we used to, or our parents didn't raise us right, or society hasn't treated us correctly, or we have all these explanations, but we can't get rid of it, and deep down inside, we are driven, and we are covering. Why? Why can't some of you ever imagine dating somebody that you don't think is that good-looking? Why, why is it that some of you cannot imagine not being very attractive? Why are some of you working and working and working and thinking, man, if I could just get to that point, 
if I could finally just get that title, then I can finally just rest. I just need to endure this season. If I get to there, everything will finally be okay. What is all of this? What is that? We could make more lists, but those are all just fig leaves. Don't you know? Don't you, don't you see it? Until you recognize what the deep restlessness is, you're, you're covering something, and you know there's something wrong with you. That's why you're working so hard. And not until you see that can you understand verse 10. What does verse 10 say? For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And maybe if you're thinking and really trying to reason all this out and you were here last week, you might be going, Josh, I thought last week we talked about how good work is. And here you're saying we should stop working. That like doesn't make sense, right? I'm not trying to be confusing, okay? Uh, work is not a bad thing. Work is a really good thing. Okay? It's not a wrong thing at all. It's only wrong when our work becomes this self-justifying thing. It's only wrong when we try to do these works so that we could be accepted or, or, or we could say we're somebody or we could say, you know what, I'm okay. See this? I'm okay. See, when the reason that we are be kind, being kind to people it is just so that we are absolutely sure that we are okay, we're okay. That, that's revealing a deep restlessness in us. It's wrong when the reason we're treating others good or well is so that we can now think, well, well, those people need to treat me well now or God needs to bless me now. Or it's wrong when, when the reason we're working is to get a feeling that, you know what, I'm all right. That's self-justifying work and that will just destroy you in the long run. Because you will never be satisfied. You will never rest. When you're working and doing things so that you can look yourself in the mirror in the morning and feel good about yourself or justify yourself to other people or justify yourself to God, you will never, ever be able to put your work down and say like God did, it's good, I'm satisfied. I don't know if you guys have ever seen or heard of that, that movie, Chariots of Fire. I, I feel like that's one of those movies that everyone like knows about, but no one's really ever watched. You know, they're like, it's, it's like in black and white, right? I'm like, who watches that? Okay. But if, you, if you're familiar with the story, it, it tells a story about these two runners. One's named Eric Liddell. He's a believer. He's a Christian. One guy's named Harold Abrams. And uh, Harold Abrams in the movie says that when the gun goes off, it's about running. Sorry, if you haven't seen it, it's about running. Held Abrams in the movie says this. He says, when the gun goes off, I'm running as fast as I can to justify myself. When I run, it's so that I could feel good about who I am. Eric Liddell, the opposite end, said this. He said, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. He didn't say, I'm trying to earn God's pleasure. He didn't say that. So you have one guy, Harold, okay, who runs to be sure of who he is. He's running to try to maintain this identity that he's achieving for himself. The other person, Eric, runs because he knows whose he is. 
So very different things. Two men working very hard, running very fast, but one man is always weary even when he's resting. And one man is always resting even when he's working. Which do you want to be? Because there is an invitation, there is a call to rest. Here is hope for us to find in this passage. There's hope for rest in a restless world. So we see this call to enter God's rest. Verse two. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith. They didn't believe what God was promising them with those who listened. You see here at the beginning in verse two that previously people have been invited into God's rest and those people did not enter it because of unbelief. That's why they didn't enter it. So the invitation to rest, to find this rest that this is talking about is through belief. It's not through work. You don't work in order to get it. You believe something in order to get it. But somehow, if you look down in verse 11, it says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So it's not working, it's believing, but somehow we're supposed to strive to enter it. So it's not work, it's belief. So we should strive to believe? Belief in what? How do you enter this? How is this call coming to us? Well, the invitation to come and rest is available to us, and we can enter God's rest through the better Joshua, through the one who went through the greatest restlessness so that we could enter God's rest. That's why it says in verse 9, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. But then look down in verse 13. It's really scary. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him, referring to God, to whom we must give an account. This, this, this idea of being naked and exposed, being laid bare, I'm, I can't even, hardly even say it. It's the Greek word, trachelizdomai, something. Okay? I'm not that smart. It's... It's the same word we get our word trachea from, okay? It's, it's really graphic. It's kind of disgusting, okay? It means to stretch the neck back. Sorry, ladies, okay? So you can stretch the neck back so that you can cut the neck and kill the sacrificed animal. I mean, this, you have this image. You have this sword image. It's just like a pretty grisly passage, pretty restful, right? Okay? But it was always used in the context of sacrificing animals. Pull the neck back, slit the throat. This graphic image of how we are exposed before God, this is what this is representing. This is a graphic image of how all of us will be judged according to our works. Because if there is a God of justice, and the Bible says that there is, this tells you that all of us will be cut off that none of us can enter this rest. Like you can't have it. You disobeyed. But oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. There's such great news here. There is such an incredible invitation. There's a, 
an incredible call to rest here because look in the next verse, which we didn't even read. And it's a verse that moves us into the rest of Hebrews. It says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive what? Mercy. So that we may receive what? Grace. To help in a time of need. Verse 14 starts this section. It says, go to Jesus and you will find grace and mercy. But verse 13 says, we will be cut off because we're exposed for who we are. Well, what is happening here? This is what's, this is what's happening. This is, this is what you must give your attention to. This is what you must strive to believe. It's this, that Jesus was cut off from the land of the living. That he was literally stripped naked on the cross so that we could be clothed with the love of God. That Jesus was cut off from the rest of God, from the source of rest. He was thrown into cosmic restlessness so that we could be called into and experience the rest of God. And when he died, he said what? He said, it is finished. What is finished? The work of every human heart, what every human heart is trying to do, the self-justifying work. He says, I've done it. And then you get to the book of Ephesians, and it says, after Christ finished it, that's that justifying work on your behalf. It says, God raised him up and did what? Seated him at the right hand of God. So Jesus rests now from his work. He looks out on his work, and he says, it is good I am satisfied. It is finished. So you may be disobedient and not trust in God like the Israelites of old, but, but there is one, namely Jesus, who was never disobedient, and he invites you to come to him and to enter that rest. Jesus in the gospel accounts, he doesn't say, go to that thing. Go over there to that thing, or go to that person, or go over here or there, and you will find rest. No, he says, come to me. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. The kind of rest that is getting beneath the restlessness that you see. It's the rest beneath the rest. I'm gonna still the restlessness beneath the restlessness. Well, how can you lay your work and down and walk away from it and be satisfied and rest? Because you're absolutely sure now of who you are. It's knowing that you are delighted in by, by the only set of eyes that you ever have to give an account to. I, I don't know any other way. I don't know any other path to experience that kind of rest. It's through believing in Jesus and striving to believe daily his words that are good news, just having those wash over you. That brings rest. If you're anything like me, you love fires. Yeah. Fires that are very much in control, like in a fireplace kind of thing. Okay. I'm not going to jump out of a helicopter. I'm thankful for coals of the world and stuff like that, right? Okay. I love fires. And you know that when you're sitting in, in, a, in a house next to a fire, maybe you've experienced this before, we'll turn our heat off and I'll sit next to our fire. And I'm like really warm and toasty. 
But after a while, I get up and I kind of leave that fireplace. And I get into the rest of my house and I realize, oh wow, it's a lot, it's a lot more cold out here. The farther I get away from this fire, the colder it, it becomes. And, and I can do different things. You know, I can, you know, I could try to do some calisthenics. You know, I can try to get some body heat moving or something, right? I could try to do some activity, right? To keep myself feeling warm. But you know what I could really do? I could just go sit next to the fire. I could, I could feel the heat from the fire again, right? I find that the gospel is like a fire in my life. And sometimes other things in my life, like really the rest of my house, it gets kind of cold. And I, and I have a lot of self-justifying things that I can do in my life, that I do do in my life. That's because the natural default mode of the human heart is to forget the gospel, to forget what's being talked about here in our passage, and to go back to self-justification. And yeah, if your life's going the way you want it to, you can mask that, but it'll eventually be exposed for what it is. And so as soon as I fail, as soon as I experience criticism or something doesn't go the way I want it to in my life, I start making longer lists. I start thinking, well, I, I can do this or I can do that. I can keep myself busy. I can work longer hours. Right? I'm, I, I can jump around. I can stay warm. I can do this. When really I should just go back to the fire and hear who I am. Uh, there's a man who did this really well. His name was Hudson Taylor. He's not with us any longer. Honestly, few have lived uh, as stressful and frenetic a life as Hudson Taylor was, or as Hudson Taylor lived. Uh, he founded the uh, China Inland Mission, which is a mission agency that goes to, go figure, China. Okay. And uh, Taylor was a man who, in the midst of storms and, and restlessness of life, he learned to live in God's rest. He learned to sit by the fire of the gospel, if you will. And Hudson Taylor's son beautifully attested to this, and this is going to be on the screen. He, his son wrote this about his dad. He said, day and night, this was his secret, just to roll the burden onto the Lord. Frequently, those who are wakeful in the little house at Chingkang might hear, at two or three in the morning, the soft refrain of Mr. Taylor's favorite hymn. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. He had learned that for him only one life was possible, just that blessed life of resting and rejoicing in the Lord under all circumstances, while he dealt with the difficulties inward and outward, great and small. Are you resting? That there is an invitation. There is a call to rest, not just to relax, not just to take a day off, not just to watch Netflix or go on a hike somewhere. That's not the call. There's an invitation tonight. There's a call from God to you to experience the deep inner rest that your heart is restless for. There is, in fact, a promise. This whole chapter starts out calling this a promise of rest. If you believe in Jesus who experienced the, the lack of rest, 
the greatest lack of rest so that you could be secured full and true and have to the umpteenth degree the rest that comes from God. It's his rest. The person who can be warmed by the fire of God's work in the gospel will find rest. Go to the fire. Then you will be able to lay your work down and really rest. I'll end with this. Uh, St. Augustine, long, long, long time ago, he started out his, one of his most famous writings, Confessions, like this. God, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Oh God, that's so true.